Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. By the way, um, during the week, join us. The name of the show, Fox Business Network, Fox Business Network, FBN, uh, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. Name of the show is Cudlow, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. If you can't make it at 4, for some crazy reason, why then Why then just text your favorite 9-year-old, <laughs> and she will show you how to DBR the show, and you'll never miss a thing. And here... Uh, you can get us on the internet, live stream on the internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. It'll run all around the country, throughout the globe, throughout the solar system, even the Milky Way. I'm still trying to figure out what the Milky Way is. Anyway, lots to talk about. I want to begin, uh, with a little bit of a review of Donald Trump versus CNN. On Wednesday night's uh, town hall, it was really a debate with Caitlin Collins. Um, we'll have Charlie Hurd on at the half hour to talk some more about that. But there are some wonderful moments in that. First of all, I thought Trump was great. I thought he hit a home run. And uh, the left is furious. They're melting down. CNN got good ratings, I think over $3 million. They'll never see that again, or at least not for quite some time. But I thought uh, my former boss and the uh, former president did a very, very good job. Very good job. And I think, by the way, if you can get through all the Caitlin Collins interruptions, and she did have very bad manners, Trump had a lot of important things to say, which is what I want to focus on substantively, because after all, we're in the midst of a Republican primary. He does have a lead, but this was a... I won't say this was a coming out, but this was certainly a preview of how energetic he was and how sharp he was. And uh, substantively what he talked about, and we have some we have some sound on one of the absolute key moments in this uh, town hall where he talked about substance and the strong economy that he created. I think we can run this uh, sound clip. Let's take a listen. Drill, baby, drill. We were energy independent. We were soon going to be energy dominant. And nobody had ever done what I did. We got oil down to $1.87. Actually, it fell lower than that in some cases. We had to save the oil companies the, the price was getting. So we were doing incredibly. We had the greatest economy in the history of our country, probably the greatest economy in the history of the world. We were energy independent, soon to be energy dominant. We were going to be bigger than Russia and Saudi Arabia put together times two. We have more liquid gold under our feet than any other nation, any other nation. And these stupid fools ended it. 
And energy went from a dollar eighty-seven and even lower for gasoline for a car. They went from a dollar eighty-seven to five, six, seven, eight, and even nine dollars. And your electricity bills went through the roof. Your heating bills went through the roof. And that's what started inflation. And it hasn't stopped because people are paying now for bacon and for eggs and for the two and three times what it was just a little while ago. We created the greatest economy in history. A big part of that economy was I get, got you the biggest tax cuts in the history of our country, bigger than the Reagan cuts, bigger than any. And, and also, Caitlin, also, as you know, we got the biggest regulation and regulatory cuts. We, this place was rocking, and then we were given a gift from China, and China paid a big price. And let me tell you something. I took in hundreds of billions of dollars all, in taxes. That's all we need. Yeah. This place was rocking. And this was a turning point in the entire debate, but you heard the big applause from the crowd. And this is going to be one of the biggest themes in the campaign. This is going to be a pocketbook election. This is going to be an economic election. It's going to be a recession election. It's going to be an inflation election. And what Mr. Trump did here, very simply, very straightforwardly, was tell his story of the great economic successes of his administration with the key policies that he opened up the spigots for oil and gas. We were the great, uh, biggest producer in the world, energy dominant. Energy prices were very low. I think uh, gasoline, uh, $2 a gallon, some such. The price of uh, oil was running around uh, $40, $50 a barrel compared to today. And he also had a huge tax cut, which was a great success. Not only did it spur growth and jobs, get the unemployment rate down, uh, but the biggest beneficiaries, uh, counter to what um, Joe Biden keeps saying, the fact remains, uh, the biggest beneficiaries of the Trump tax cuts were middle-income people, blue-collar people, working folks, lower middle-class people, and lower-income people. The poverty rate went down. The uh, income distribution narrowed. You couldn't have a better scenario than you had under Trump policies. And, uh, again, as a young man, I watched this when Reagan cut tax cuts, and I worked for Reagan. And that's a key point in this whole uh, discussion, and it really was a sort of coming-out party for former President Trump. He laid that right out. And it was a key point in the uh, in the debate. And I will tell you, folks, I know a lot of people listen to this. They don't like Trump. There's probably nothing I can do to persuade them. But the fact of the matter is, I think middle-of-the-road people, independent voters, I mean, the crowd in uh, St. Anselm's College in New Hampshire was made up of Republicans and independents. And he got huge applause from that line, and that wasn't the only line. But there were other things that he talked about besides the economy when Caitlin Collins stopped interrupting him. I mean, she really was badly mannered, terrible, just terrible. But that's the the, CN, uh, the CNN problem. Uh, of course, we have a catastrophe at the border right now, complete chaos, Title 42 being lifted. Uh, here's what Trump said about uh, the border story uh, down south. Let's play this sound also. A very fair question, especially since tomorrow is going to be a day of infamy. 
you're going to have tens of thousands of people pouring into our country. Even the judge, you know, the judge overruled them when they wanted to terminate it early. And he said, you know that you better extend this thing. The judge in Texas said, I hope you're going to extend this. But this is my policy that they're letting terminate because they lost in court. They wanted to go earlier. You're going to have millions of people pouring into our country right now at a level that nobody's ever seen before. These people are sick. Anybody that wants this to happen to our country, they're destroying our country, and this should not be allowed to happen. How they're not going to do a version of Title 42 or my Title 42, which was tough, if people are sick and have infectious diseases and lots of other problems, we don't want them being into our country. We have enough problems right now. We have problems like we've never had in the history of our country. But, Mr. Our country, President, our country the is reason being it's destroyed. All right, so... Of course, we're watching this in real time. Uh, Tens of thousands of people are coming in, the end of Title 42. You know, um, Trump had some very simple policies to protect the southern border. One of them was to build a wall, which uh, was stopped now when Biden came in. Secondly was to remain in Mexico. Anybody who was seeking an asylum into the United States for legitimate reasons had to remain in Mexico uh, until their case was heard by the U.S. authorities. That, of course, uh, has been scrapped. And then the Title 42 during COVID, uh, which was a public health measure, uh, that uh, helped keep the policy of um, uh, catch and deport. Catch and deport. All that's been scrapped. We know that. The Bidens are for open borders. Uh, they have no replacement for Title 42, I mean, really, uh, Trump's point here, incidentally, about infectious diseases is a very important point. There's still a lot of infectious diseases, even though the immediate problem of COVID has passed away, thankfully. And there's also a public safety issue, and that is all of the drug trafficking, all of the sex trafficking, all of the child trafficking. Uh, The cartels run the border. Uh, In two and a half years, almost two and a half years, the Bidens have done absolutely nothing to recapture the border, to close the border, to do anything with the cartels, to keep people out. It's an open border policy, and it's a disastrous policy. We'll talk more about it uh, as the show goes on. Uh, Former uh, DHS Secretary um, uh, Chad Wolf will be on to talk about that. But, you know, here, too. Uh, the contrast between Biden and Trump is enormous. I just wanted to just circle back. You know, the Biden economy right now, the last 15 months, really the full, I mean, 2021 was uh, not a Biden economy. 2021 was still the recovery from COVID and also the recovery from Trump. I mean, Trump had two uh, rallies in the economy, two recoveries. The first one was 2018 and 2019. Uh, the second one was after covid uh, or during COVID, from roughly the middle of 2020 on, he gave Biden a 6.5% uh, economic growth rate with only uh, uh, 1.5% inflation rate. So the point is, uh, the last 15 months, uh, which Biden's economy last year and the first quarter of this year, were growing at 0.9%. That's what Biden has done, and the average inflation rate is 6.5%. So these were Trump policies, and the point is he did it once, he can do it again. That is essentially going to be, I think, uh, his key campaign uh, issue. He will also 
uh, argue strenuously to close the border again, to close the border again by going back to remain in Mexico, by building the wall, uh, probably substituting something for Title 42. All these things uh, would be done. And that's what he said at the CNN uh, town hall meeting when uh, Caitlin Collins did everything she could to try to have all these gotcha questions and go back to the 2020 election, all the things the left wants, forgetting all the positive things that Trump has done. And I want to raise another issue. Things came up about uh, about possible legislation or national policies about abortion, for example, or Vladimir Putin or who should win the war in the Ukraine uh, or the debt ceiling. And one of the things uh, that Trump tried to explain, but I want to emphasize this, is what a superb negotiator Trump is. Now, you know, Caitlin Collins kept asking him, who should win the war in Ukraine? Is Vladimir Putin a war criminal? And Trump's answer was, look, the first thing is to stop the killing in Ukraine. Stop the killing in Ukraine. And he believes that he could go and negotiate with Putin and with Zelensky to stop the killing. Now, people may doubt that, but that would be one of his goals. Joe Biden has done nothing to stop the killing. Trump also mentioned how the United States has spent $170 billion so far, and Europe, which is this war is in their backyard, Europe has uh, ponied up only $20 billion dollars. I mean, that's crazy. Why should we shoulder the entire burden? Uh, That isn't the way it works. So Trump would negotiate. Uh, With respect to, let's say, the debt ceiling, okay, Trump is saying the Republican plan from Kevin McCarthy, and we'll talk a lot about that as the show goes on, is a good plan. It would cut roughly $5 trillion off of budget spending, which has to be done, to stop inflation and help recover the economy. Trump would negotiate. He would use the debt ceiling as a negotiating tool, uh, which is exactly what you have to do in these situations. Already, McCarthy has pushed uh, Joe Biden to the negotiating table, even though Biden said he would only talk about a clean debt bill and not any budget cuts. Already, the staffs are negotiating. That's Trump's style, is to negotiate. He's a superb negotiator. Uh, With respect to abortion, uh, Caitlin Collins kept talking about, you know, do you want this, do you want that? And Trump's point is he nominated and got through three pro-life judges, conservative judges. Roe v. Wade was overturned, and he would use that as a negotiating tool if there was a national abortion policy. Now, Trump didn't say he supported a national abortion policy, but he said he would be able to negotiate by using the Supreme Court decision to end Roe v. Wade and how proud he was of the um, pro-life judges. Again, the key point is negotiation. You know, I I worked, uh, again, years ago when I was a young man, I worked for Reagan. And Reagan was also a superb negotiator. People forget about that. To Reagan get his defense budget increases through, to get his tax cuts through, to get other measures through, spending restraints, he negotiated. Reagan had learned as the president, I think he was five times the president 
of the Screen Actors Guild Union, and also he honed his negotiating skills as a spokesman for GE, General Electric, the old uh, GE. Negotiation is almost a lost art. Joe Biden doesn't negotiate because Joe Biden's not around. You can't even find the guy. And when you can ever find him, if he ever shows up, he's not even copacetic. Trump was a brilliant negotiator. He learned this in his private, successful private business life as a realtor, as a real estate uh, builder. And um, negotiation is a lost art in Washington, D.C., again, because Joe Biden, you know, doesn't have Joe Biden's never around. Joe Biden can't negotiate anything. And when he does speak, he's sort of mean and nasty and uh, always insulting Republicans, MAGA, 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 and other sort of blather. So the point is, Trump tried to explain, I think he he probably got it through, although... uh, Caitlin Collins from CNN didn't want to hear about it. But the reality is, he's saying you negotiate these things, you get the best possible deal you can according to your conservative principles. He had a strong economy. He protected the border. And these things came up during the debate. These were substantive things, not gotcha things. And when you heard the voters from the audience ask questions, They asked substantive questions, not gotcha questions. They were the serious ones. This Collins woman was not serious. CNN is still not a serious network. Um, So that's why I think this was a huge success. I think Trump hit a home run out of the ballpark and um, showed how energetic he is. Not age is not a problem for Mr. Trump. Uh, Energetic familiar with all of the issues, articulating his track record when he was president, and showing a future agenda, a future agenda on the economy, on foreign policy, on the border, and other things that came up uh, during the course of this discussion. This was a tremendous stellar performance from Trump. It was a shot across the bow. We haven't really started yet. The Republican debates, I think the first debate is in August, a couple months from now. It's going to be in Milwaukee. Uh, We'll see who shows up for that. But I'll tell you, I think it was a tremendous night uh, for the former president. And I think um, people who say Trump, first of all, uh, has lost his game, they're wrong. People who say Trump cannot beat Joe Biden, they're wrong also. So we'll take a quick break here. Big night, home run for Donald Trump at the CNN discussion. Uh, I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Wednesday night's uh, CNN Town Hall, a very big win uh, for Trump. I haven't seen any polling since this thing was on. I have a feeling it's going to be very, very positive uh, for the former president. But I want to just come back to a point. Now, the great Charlie Hurt, Washington Times columnist, he's the best pundit in Washington, D.C. He's going to be on just a few moments at the half hour. We'll we'll talk about this. But uh, Jerry Baker wrote a great piece for the Wall Street Journal. It's an op-ed piece. Uh, Gerard Baker, former Wall Street Journal uh, editor and a uh, Fox contributor. But he said if it's a, if the election coming up is a pocketbook issue, if it's going to be a pocketbook election, 
then uh, Trump may well win, despite what all the naysayers say. And the reason we played that long clip about drill, 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 and tax cuts, and the economy was rocking, and deregulation, and so forth, is because, you know, that is Donald Trump's breadbasket. That's his strong suit. Pocketbook election will favor Trump. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And we bring in my great friend, the best pundit, columnist in Washington, Charlie Hurt, Washington Times opinionator, opinion editor, Fox News contributor. Thank you, Charlie. We appreciate this. Good morning, Larry. Good to see you. Uh, So... I'm reading your column about Caitlin Collins. This is great. <laughs> um, Ms. Collins did a splendid job impersonating an annoying Washington journalist obsessed with all the things no actual voters care about. But wait, wait, repeatedly, what did you say? She she came home to defend her, tell her grandfather, wait, a student just home from college for the first time with her head full of facts and big ideas, all ready to pounce on Grandpa and straighten him out about all the things he is not supposed to talk about. Charlie, that's fabulous stuff. Isn't that exactly what it felt like, though? I felt like I was sitting there at, at, like at the dinner table, and she had just gotten home from school, and she knew everything, and she was going to straighten out uh, Grandpa. It was unbelievable. And, of course, it would have been just insufferable but it really did remind me how much I, I miss Trump on a daily basis because he's, he can make he can even taking he can even take that annoying nonsense and make it so entertaining and actually good for the country by focusing you know by turning it around and reminding these people what actually matters in in people's lives you know it's it's, it's remarkable how they these people whether it's the press or a lot of the people in Washington, they just they focus on all this stupid stuff that nobody cares about. Meanwhile, they're struggling at home, and, and these people ignore all those problems. You know, it's interesting. Um, the voters, Republicans and independents, ask really good questions about important issues, as you note in your column, uh, whereas Caitlin Collins just had this gotcha stuff and you know wanted to go back to his court cases or what happened 2020 and so forth and so on. I mean, the the contrast between her and the voters was remarkable. Yeah. And they were talking about the most obvious things that, that affect everybody, like asking about inflation, asking about gas prices, asking about, they, they were actually, if you, if you could just get rid of all of the reporters in Washington and replace them with the, uh, eight or ten people that got to ask questions yeah. at the CNN forum, we would be uh, a lot better off. Was this kind of a coming out party for Trump? I think it was. Don't you think? Yeah. I, mean, I think that it, you know it was. You know, I, it's been enjoyable to watch how painful uh, it was for the rest of the CNN punditry to have to recognize and come face to face with the fact that. Um, Trump is still, he's still got it. He is, um, I, I would say he's actually more on point mm. today than he's ever been. 
Um, I thought he was his arguments were lucid. He was, and 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 you know, for those of us, and you and I have talked about this a lot about how you know we wish that we want him to to spend more time talking about the issues that he and he alone defined, and they got him elected in 2016, instead of sort of dwelling on the the last election, as horrible as that may have been, it doesn't do us any good to dwell on it. You're not going to win new voters that way. And I thought he did a really good job of that. You know, he obviously is unflinching in his uh, in his appraisal of the 2020 election. But he, but I, I thought he did. A, I thought I was really pleased with how, at every opportunity, he would switch the, he would turn the focus back to, you know, he'd talk about that stuff and then turn the focus back to, what his administration did right, what the current administration is doing wrong, and all of those things. You know, if you're a regular viewer at home, a regular American at home, you, you loved everything that guy was selling mm-hmm. on Tuesday night. Or Wednesday, right? I think he's better. I mean, I really yeah. think he was better. As you said, I think he was more lucid and more concise on the issues. I thought his explanations were better. I mean, it's like he's honed his arguments down. All this stuff, all the conversations that I and others have had with him over the past couple of years, you know, pressing him to move ahead with a forward agenda. <laughs> he did. I mean, there it was. Yeah. It was really... Yeah. Uh, you know, I felt like I had a good night. <laughs> and, and, yeah, exactly. And but I'm not alone. Others have advised him. Uh, you know, and he and he's key. It's funny. It's it, it's not. It's we would help. There's a bunch of us that would help. Who whoever Republicans want help to hone arguments, especially on the economy, but also on the border and a bunch of social issues. He's the only one that asks. It's interesting to me. He's the only one that really asks. Isn't it fascinating, Larry? That you, to, you, we've both been in or around politics for, uh, for for a long time. I have never encountered any politician who listens more intently mm-hmm. than that guy does. Mm-hmm. I've never talked to a politician who is more interested in sucking out of your brain what mm-hmm. you think about something. And what's really scary is he also remembers what you say yep. and then will throw it back in your face when it turns out that you were wrong eight <laughs> months later, and he reminds you <laughs> that you told him this stupid thing, that you gave him some bad advice about something. And he's like, remember that? And By the way, I have a 100 examples that I'll spare us this morning, <laughs> but I have a 100 examples. Of, you told me interest rates were going to be... <laughs> You said the Chinese would say this. <laughs> but, you know. About that forum that I thought was so interesting was uh, listening. He, he also is such a, an amazing um, negotiator. Yeah. And he's yes. negotiating yes. on the front end. He's in the middle of negotiations. And he's thinking about ne- negotiations that have already happened. And, and, and it was interesting when, like, you know, the, uh, Caitlin Collins was apoplectic when he said that he would end the Ukraine war in 24 mm-hmm. hours. Mm-hmm. And, and she, and she said, well, do you support, you know, is Putin a war criminal? And he says, you know, whatever, you know, that, that's not going to help me solve the problem. So I'm not well, going to yeah. answer that question, which is very, 
very shrewd on his part. But wow. but, but the other the other part where where he did that was when she was asking about abortion, mm-hmm. and and he just he's he, he doesn't. The only time he doesn't want to get cornered is if it's going to in, impinge his ability to negotiate a reasonable settlement. And and I just and, and you don't ever see that in politicians. Politicians are always thinking about how does this help me right now? And 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 I think it's why we're in such trouble. But you get a guy like that, he's thinking long term. How does this, you know, what does this do in terms of my ability to negotiate the best deal for the American people, no matter what it is? You know, that's uh, exactly what I wrote in my column, and I was talking about it in my opening uh, this morning. You know, he uh, reminds me of Reagan. Reagan was the same way. Reagan was a negotiator because Reagan ran a labor union. Remember, Charlie, he was head of the Screen Actors Guild. (laughs) And then he was a spokesman for General Electric, and he was involved in labor negotiations. Trump is, you're exactly right. Trump is saying to her, first, let me stop the killing, and then we'll deal with whether Putin's a war criminal. Uh, Or he would say, uh, first, understand that our pro-life judges uh, struck down Roe v. Wade, and then we'll negotiate something that all parties can live with, that kind of thing. That's rare in politics. It's a tremendous uh, advantage as a president. And with Biden, Charlie, I mean, first of all, Biden's never around. And second of all, when he's around, he's copacetic. <laughs> he's not copacetic, rather. And third of all, you know, when he does talk, it's just blarney, right? It's all this mean attack stuff. You can't get anything done that way. It's, it's just a different style. I mean, one works. Also what you get with a with with a rigid ideologue. Uh, mm-hmm. Joe Biden is a rigid ideologue who is blind to the real world around him. Whereas Donald Trump, you know, and 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 you know, as you know, as sort of more principled conservatives that that you and I are, it can be very troubling at times and sort of uh, not it's, it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But he's not. Trump is not an ideologue. He actually mm-hmm. just wants to arrive at real world honest to god good solutions to problems mm-hmm. and it's such a breath of fresh air you, it's unheard of in politics yeah. and he knew how to hammer people in order to get their attention <laughs> he really you know that's a, that's something i found it unsettling when i first went to work for him but then i finally <laughs> figured out what he was doing and actually it was kind of cool I mean, he basically, you know, it's like at the southern border now, which is such a disaster. The reason he got Remain in Mexico is he, he got AMLO, Obrador's attention, President Obrador's attention, uh, by telling him, okay, if you don't play ball with me on this, I'm just going to raise your tariffs to 50% or 70%. You're, you're not going to send another automobile to the United States. That got his attention. And all of a sudden, we had a deal called remain in Mexico while the asylum hearings would go on. That's what he would do. It was the same thing with China. He would jack up their yeah. tariffs and drive everybody crazy. <laughs> but that's how we got a deal. All right, Charlie, hang on. I, I need you for an, another uh, 10 or 12 minutes if you can spare us. I want to talk some more about a pocketbook election. Anyway, folks, we're talking with the great Charlie Hurt. Washington Times opinion editor and columnist and Fox News contributor. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. 
This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Charlie Hurt, Washington Times opinion editor and columnist, Fox News contributor. Charlie, I want to raise one point. Um, Trump absolutely hit a grand slam home run when he talked about drill, baby, drill, and cutting taxes and mm-hmm. regulations and how strong the economy was. And this is likely to be, in large part, a pocketbook election, an economic election, recession, inflation, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, um, I think he is well-suited to take advantage of that. I mean, people say he can't beat Biden. People say he's not going to win the primaries. I mean, really, this is his breadbasket. This is his absolute best part, and you saw it in that debate. And, you know, he got a huge round of applause when he said, drill, baby, drill. I mean, it was like spontaneous. Yeah, and, and he's so good at, at uh, putting the spotlight on um, it, when, you know, a, a simple, clear answer like that. And, and it, it really is a simple, clear answer. You know, when you have gas prices uh, double in during the two years after Joe, because of Joe Biden's policy, you know, every single one of these things, whether it's inflation with the monstrous spending or gas prices with the, the Biden administration's war on energy independence or, or the red tape, all of this stuff ties directly to, you know, Joe Biden's policies. And that's where Trump is at his best when it's a, it, it really, you know, a lot of times in life, there isn't a simple answer. Hmm. In, in this case, there are simple answers. Yeah. <laughs> and Trump is very, very good at putting that spotlight on those I mean, we haven't heard the, the drill, baby, drill. We haven't, you know, we haven't even heard Republicans say that in uh, eight, years. eight or ten years. Yeah, yeah. years. So, and, and but it's, I have to say though, the, the curiosity about it, about um, you know, I will never, I still haven't quite figured out. I think that the, obviously the Dobbs decision had a lot to do with this, but I, you know, what happened in these midterms still baffles me. Mm-hmm. Um, but but one of the reasons I think that. It get, doesn't get talked about much is that I think a lot of people, things were so bad, got so bad for so many people. And I get it. There are a lot of people in this country who have jobs, whose wages have gone up, and, uh, that, you know, for whom, you know, life is fine right now. But for the very large majority of Americans, American workers, things are not going well. And when things go really badly, sometimes sort of political discussions get pushed to the back of the shelf and they get focused on, on other stuff. And, and, you know, get, whether it's gas prices or grocery prices or whatever, that, you know, people get concerned about more important things in their mind than politics. And so in a midterm, you know, you don't have quite the turnout that, that we expected. And again, you know, the Dobbs decision uh, probably played a larger role in that than, um, uh, you know, some significant role in, in, in why Democrats didn't lose as badly as I thought they would in the midterms. But man, a general election where you have, you know, we're going to spend, we're going to see literally billions of dollars spent over the course of the next year and a half for the, the midterm, for the, the 2024 election. No one is going to be able to avoid that thing. And in that kind of environment where you have people suffering the way people are suffering and you have a guy who is so good as Trump is at put, shining the spotlight on the, the clear, obvious path forward 
and the clear, obvious things that this administration is doing to hurt America and Americans and especially American workers, man, it's a that's a powder keg. And uh, and, and nobody is better than Trump is on, I don't think in, in that, that kind of fight. I don't think GOP did a terrific job nationalizing the midterms, yes. particularly on the Senate yeah. side. But a presidential race, you're right, is all about nationalizing the mid uh, the elections. Yeah. And the pocketbook stuff is going to be so important. And, again, it, it is exactly his strengths. Uh, I mean, we don't know. Look, uh, Governor DeSantis uh, hasn't quite yet thrown his hat into the ring, although he's been sort of running. He may have an economic message, okay, and it might be a strong economic message for all we know. But so far we haven't heard that from him. And that's why I think the CNN thing was a coming out party for Trump because he was so clear uh, on the economy, yeah. on his, you know, I did it once, I can do it again. In fact, he did it twice and he can do it again. And that's a powerful, powerful election. People say he couldn't beat Biden. I mean, I don't understand. What are they thinking? They're missing the whole picture. Yeah, and, and yeah, the thing that's interesting is, that, you know, Trump is so good at harnessing Deep, deep frustration, mm. real frustration, by the way. They're not made up frustrations that like the me- the way the media tries to portray. These are real frustrations that people have. And they that, that, that it, you know, and, and Trump tapped into that in 2016. I would argue that fast forward to 2024, people's frustrations are even higher. And part of the reason that they're even more frustrated is because of, you know, they, they elected Donald Trump in 2016. And then they sat back and they watched what Washington, what what Democrats, what the media did to their the person that they elected to fix the problems, and and it kind of exposed that the problems are as bad as they they appeared in 2016. It turns out the problems are 50 times worse, and these people are even more evil and more dishonest. And so I think that that level of frustration is even higher. And, 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 you know, and there's a lot I love about Ron DeSantis. Um, I think he is a very calculated, uh, a, a very thoughtful, smart, pragmatic fighter, generally. Um, but I don't know that he's necessarily good at harnessing that frustration the way Trump is. Trump is so good at that. And, he's, and again, he's not making it up. You know, you, get, you, you know, you have evil politicians like, you know, Democrats who harness, a, you know, who, who manufacture, you know, like, like this whole thing with race that they do where they accuse everybody of being racist and they accuse mm-hmm. cops of being racist. Mm-hmm. They're make, Democrats are making that up. That doesn't exist. They're completely making it up in order to harness anger and rage to help them get elected. But that's so totally dishonest, and it's destructive, and it's, uh, it's, it's, and it hurts the very people they claim to be helping. Trump and, and the, the frustrations on the other side, they're real frustrations. They're not fantasy. Mm. They're not making that up. And, and Trump is so good at harnessing that. And I, I don't know that Ron DeSantis um, is – he's never demonstrated that he's – he's very good at enacting policy, and I admire that a lot. But we're kind of uh, there, there's a there's a, a seething frustration among regular normal voters in this country that I don't think that he necessarily speaks to. Trump does. Trump is great at it. Uh, 
Charlie Hurt, uh, in our last minute, how important is this border catastrophe going to be in this election? Oh, I think I, I think it goes right along the lines with that that profound deep frustration, right? I mean, you know, it, it was bad in 2016. People were frustrated, and that was a that was a sleeper uh, issue in the 2016. It turned out to be gargantuan to the point that you actually have Democrats uh, had Democrats at the time realizing that oh my goodness, this is a real problem for us. It's gotten ten times worse because of this the intentional policies of this administration to destroy our country mm. and demolish our borders. I think it, it's almost, you know, it, it's on the front pages now. It's almost underrated. Uh, somebody <laughs> said, I forget, I think I had Senator um, Eric Schmidt on, I think it was he, uh, who said every state is a border state. Yeah. Every state is a border state. And that's, yeah. that's just going to be huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah, and, 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 and that was already true, but it's made 10 times more true because of what's going on now, yeah, because of the Biden yeah. administration. Charlie Hurt, Washington Times. We appreciate it, my friend. We'll talk Thanks, soon. Sir. See you this oh, week. Thanks very much. Folks, we're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about why the Bidens are destroying our entire power system in America. I'm Kudlow. Please stay with us. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And we're going to bring in my great pal Bjorn Lomborg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus, author and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. And he has a new book. And this is a wild book. Best Things First. The 12 Most Efficient Solutions for the World's Poorest and Our Global SDG Promises. Bjorn Borg. Hey, almost. Hi, Larry. How are you doing? This is quite a thing here. 12 Most Efficient Solutions and for $35 billion a year, we're going to save 4.2 million lives each year. Now, this is this is good. This is good. Something's good. Maybe you can just give us a quick synopsis, because then I got a couple of things for you that I got to ask about. Absolutely. So, Larry, it's great to be back. And and look, the world has promised so many different things, and you know we constantly have this flow of all the stuff that's in the media, all the things we worry about. Uh, but the truth is, there are some few things out there where little money can make an amazing difference. And then there's a lot of policies where we can you know, waste trillions and deliver very little good. So what we basically ask, we've asked some of the world's top economists to find where can you do the very most good. And just to give you a couple of examples. So, for instance, on tuberculosis, you, you know, most people in the rich world don't think about this anymore. But last year, it killed more people than died from COVID mm. because that's what happens every year when you're poor. There's mm. 1.4 million people who die from tuberculosis every year, and it's literally just a question of not that much money. We're talking about $6 billion a year, so not nothing, but you know, $6 billion, and you could basically avoid about a million deaths for the most part of the rest of this half century. We could just simply save so many people at very low cost. So that's one part of it. You know, tuberculosis, 
maternal and newborn deaths. You know, what one two point three million kids die in their first month on this planet, and we know how to save most of them. Again, this is not rocket science. You know, child immunization, malaria, nutrition, chronic diseases. These are very, very simple things. So that's how we end up with the 4.2 million deaths that can be avoided. But, of course, it's not just good enough to you know, save people's lives. That's great. But you also need to make them rich. And one of the incredible things that happen is this is true all over the world, but especially in the poor part of the world, people are not learning anything in school. You have all these kids in school. <laughs> but they're learning very, very little. There is a very well-proven way to address this. I'm just going to tell you one of them. Uh, but, you know, basically the problem is that you have all the 12-year-olds in one grade in the same class, and they're vastly different. Some of them are incredibly bored because the teacher is way behind them, and some of them have no idea what's going on. If you instead, just one hour a day, give them a tablet, with educational software where they actually learn at their particular level. So this software very quickly finds out if you're really smart or if you have no clue what's going on, and then it teaches you at this level. For $30 a year, Hmm. you can make sure that this kid learns not one year of schooling as it normally would have, but three years of schooling. You simply make half of the world's kids smarter, and so when they start getting into jobs, they will do better. They will produce more. It'll deliver more than half a trillion dollars of benefit for this fairly small investment, a little less than $10 billion. These are incredible investments. This is how you make the world better off, both by people not dying and people getting richer. How about eradicating poverty? Exactly. This is Well, one of the ways you eradicate poverty is, for instance, through trade. Uh, right. So we know, you know, nobody talks about trade anymore. It's become sort of almost a, well, you probably do. Uh, a lot of people <laughs> don't talk about trade. I, talk, right? I do talk we, about it. Free trade is a good thing. It is. And and look, this is what got us rich. It's what got China and India rich, uh, Vietnam, uh, Chile, many other countries, uh, South Korea, obviously. And we need to have more of it. Now, we've actually done the first analysis ever that takes into account that there are real downsides to trade. You know, some people, when you open up uh, for free trade, some people are going to lose their jobs. This is what you know, the Rust Belt uh, mm-hmm. conversation was about. That's a real issue. And so what we find is for rich countries, you have the largest amount of benefit from more free trade, but you also have the largest cost because that's where you know, most of the jobs that will be eradicated uh, are. So actually, the benefit-cost ratio for free trade in the rich world is only seven. Every dollar that people loses their job, you get seven dollars of benefits. That's still great, and we you know we should definitely embrace it. But for the poor part of the world, there's almost no job loss and only upsides. So they get ninety-five dollars back on the dollar. That's of mm. course why we should do free trade, especially for the world's poor. Mm. Agreed. Uh, Bjorn, I want to talk to something a little more dismal than your optimistic points, and that is um, the uh, EPA here has uh, put together new regulations that would basically spell the end of fossil fuel power plants. It's been a big story uh, in the States this past week. Uh, they put up a tr- uh, unbelievable um, 
new emissions regulations that would re- really end, uh, unless the courts rule it, and they may, it may be unconstitutional because Supreme Court has ruled against regulators recently. Uh, but basically, they put so much uh, uh, difficult um, emissions requirements now that natural gas would cease to exist as a power source. Uh, I think this is a terrible idea. I think this is an example of uh, you know overreaction. It's not going to help world climate change. It doesn't affect cli- India. It doesn't affect China. It could be devastating for our economy. I don't know whether you followed this or not, Bjorn, but it's a terrible idea. Yeah. And, and, and Larry, I, I think there's two things to actually say about that. So I've seen some of it. I'm not probably not as well versed in it as you are. Uh, but the fundamental point is Biden has been promising and, you know, most Democrats are very clearly saying because of global warming, global warming, real warming is caused by climate, uh, by, by burning fossil fuels. So they're right about that there's a problem, but then they're saying, so in order to fix climate change, we should basically eradicate all use of fossil fuels. Now, right. remember, Fossil fuels is how we got rich. This is what enabled us to have lots and lots of power, lots and lots of access to things that could actually produce wealth. This is what got us rich. Most people are not willing to go to net zero. If you look at what the cost is going to be, uh, we're talking you know, sort of in the order of 5% if you do it really, really well. So 5% of U.S. GDP, so more than a trillion dollars every year. And that could very easily... Uh, uh, escalate. So we may talk by mid-century about $11,000 per person per year in the U.S. This is costly policy. Now, it will have, as you point out, a tiny but not very dramatic impact. It will probably reduce uh, temperatures by the end of the century by 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. So if the U.S. entirely stops all emissions from actually now and for the rest of the century, you will barely be able to notice it by the end of the century. But Americans certainly will. And, of course, what really happens is that when politicians start putting those kinds of burdens on people, they will probably vote people out of office. Mm. But it's also it's for, that, that was one part of the answer. But the other one is really to recognize it's amazing how many people of goodwill. You know, a lot of people who really worry about climate change, they want to do this to help the world. And look, again, there is a problem. I've argued, and we've had that discussion many times, we should fix this through innovation because that's Mm -hmm. how you fix most big problems. Mm -hmm. But they want to fix it by telling everyone, you can't do this. You have to freeze a little more in the winter. You have to sweat a little more in the summer. You have to be a little more uncomfortable. You can't eat the stuff you like. You can't drive. You can't do all these things. But at least we'll fix some climate change. But the reality is, as you point out, you never get China and India and everybody else on board because, quite frankly, they have bigger and more important issues like getting their population out of poverty, making sure they don't die from easily curable infectious diseases, all these other things. And so in some way, there's something really wrong with our perspective that we only focus on this one issue that we can only barely make a dent with if we make everyone poor in the rich world. It's not I mean, going to work. And talk it's incredibly expensive. If you talk about technological innovation, which is the ultimate solution to all these things, as we've discussed so many times, there's two things here. One is the use of hydrogen, and the second, Bjorn, is carbon capture. Now, both of those things are worth pursuing, 
but we we don't have it yet. The technology is not there yet, and yet the EPA wants to say either you do this to, quickly in the next year or two or three, or we're going to have to stop all this. This is an example, I think, of very stupid regulations where you'll do much more harm than good, and you can't leapfrog ahead of the technology. It will come, but you can't stop everything else until it does come. Yeah. And it's going to be fantastically expensive. And, of course, what will really happen, and we've seen this in the U.K., uh, you know, you should simply move all your production uh, offshore. You know, so it'll go to China and Vietnam and many mm-hmm. other places, uh, and that would be great for those countries, remind you. Uh, uh, but, but it's not going to be great for the U.S. Uh, this is not the way to solve it by simply making it unaffordable. The way you solve problems is by making sure they become affordable, and you do that through innovation. All right, Bjorn Lomborg, great stuff. Uh, best things first, the 12 most efficient solutions for the world's poorest and our global SDG promises. What's SDG? So that's what everyone, also the U.S., have promised uh, 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 the uh, sustainable development goals. Uh. Pretty much everything to the world. So you know, eradicate poverty, hunger, disease, stop war, climate change, end corruption, fix education, uh, along with getting organic apples to everyone. So it's literally something where we promise everything to everyone. And, of course, we're failing badly, and that's why I wrote this book, to say, right. look, if you can't do it all, why don't you do the smartest stuff first? <laughs> Great stuff. Bjorn Lomborg. Thank you, buddy. Talk soon. Appreciate it. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, John Carney at Breitbart. We're going to talk about interest rates and the Federal Reserve and why the Fed shouldn't be engaged in climate change at all. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We bring in John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and author of the Breitbart Business Digest, a must-read. John, welcome back. So let me just ask you this. Um, We were talking about this a little bit yesterday on the TV. You really think the Fed is significantly considering another quarter-point rate hike? I think that that there is an argument for doing it that they will have. I think they end up positive. But I do think that what they... Um, they are not very happy with the market pricing in all these rate cuts. Mm. And they're trying to right now jawbone the market out of that position. And it's not working, frankly. You know, you had this speech, um, by Michelle Bauman out of the, you know, in at the European Central Bank Conference in Frankfurt, where she basically said, look, we may have to keep hiking. And the market just ignored her. Right. Like it did not pay any attention to that. It still prices in a 90 percent chance of a cut mm. at the July meeting. And so if the Fed really and, and the Fed wants the market to be prepared for the first of all, that's bad, because what it means is all of this pricing of a cut uh, while the economy is still growing strong is itself a form of financial condition loosening. Uh, and that so and so that actually works contrary to what the Fed's trying to accomplish. I think if the Fed cannot convince the market that it is not going to start cutting between now and then, they may have to do a sort of shock and awe cut, mm. which would surprise everybody at the June meeting 
and that might actually push everybody back and say, okay, they're serious. Yeah, we haven't heard the chorus of Fed, you know, comments yet. <laughs> they all start no. coming out at different speeches at different places. We we haven't heard. I mean, it's a funny. I was thinking about it because I was reading. You're up on Breitbart uh, with the story, and I was just thinking about it. You know, the leading indicators of inflation, for, at least from my lights, uh, the inverted yield curve, uh, M2 falling, commodity indexes falling, are all pointing down. Okay. But, the, you know, the, the price indexes themselves, I mean, the PPI was quite good, I think 2.3%. The CPI is still running close to five. And as you pointed out, I think the uh, median CPI is is much higher. So yes. it's like choose your poison. Do you, do you look at the leading indicators uh, and the momentum of inflation is down, or do you stay with the coincident almost lagging indicators? I'm not sure. I mean, it, I acknowledge it. it. It's kind of a tricky call for them because they d- do want to emphasize – that they're going to stay with a 2% target. Yeah, they, and the, here's the thing is perhaps what has happened is that we've gotten inflation down from up where it was at 9% down to 5 6 you know, maybe down as far as 4%, but it may not be able to go much lower without more action. That was what the message coming from Michelle Bauman was. That's what I think uh, we're going to hear from other people. I mean, the thing that struck me about the speech out of Frankfurt is that she is not an uber hawk on the Fed. Mm. She's probably very close to Jerome Powell's view on this. Mm. And so I don't think that, you know, when she's saying, we, you know, that she does not think that the most recent inflation numbers were good enough to even necessarily guarantee that they stay at this level, that they may have to hike. Maybe not at the next meeting, but at subsequent meetings. I think that's a pretty, you know, I mean, Waller and Bullard are probably, you know, already on the the hike side of things. Mm. And so I I think that there is at least, you know, again, I think whatever Powell decides, everybody will more or less go along with um, because that's the way the Fed tends to work. But I do think that there is going to be some pressure towards hiking, particularly because you have this you know, ongoing battle where the bond market and the derivatives markets are saying, nope, they're cutting, you know, they're cutting not just once, twice, three times, maybe four times by the end of the year. That's and crazy. the Fed's saying, no, we're not going to do that. That's crazy. You know, I asked uh, Ed Yardeni yesterday on the show, he's a very smart guy. He's one of the best of the best, I think. What would happen if the Fed did uh, continue to raise rates? And his response was interesting. He said, well, it wouldn't be good, but we'll get through it. I mean, but I think uh, it would have some kind of a shock effect on the stock market. Uh, John Carney, one other point. You know, um, some good commentators have said this is the first time ever the Fed has raised rates during a banking crisis. But the question I have is, is it really a banking crisis or what? I mean, it's like a lot was written about it. And then, you know, some of these regional banks have gone down. Uh, one or more may go down again, but is it really a banking crisis? No, I don't think it is really a banking crisis. I think we had a couple weak banks. I think we are still seeing. I think right now, actually, it's it's more of a a uh, profit crisis for the for the regional banks rather than 
a, you know, will they stay, you know, a viability crisis for the mm. regional banks? Um, and that's one of the reasons the stocks have been going down so low is that, look, they are going to have to pay up to keep their deposits. When mm. they are competing with, on the one hand, money market funds that can park money at the Fed and earn, you know, a very good return. So that's draining money out of the uh, the bank system. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, these ultra safe banks, you put your money in JP Morgan or, you know, Bank of America that aren't paying a lot, but at least, you know, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen with them. Uh, and so I think there's this dual pressures. So, but this, but this isn't a, you know, this doesn't be the death knell for these banks. What it means is that they're going to, that their margins will get extremely compressed mm. because they to, in order to hold on to at least some of their deposits, uh, you know, I mean, just historically speaking, bank deposits are very sticky. Most people don't move, you know, even if they can get a better rate, they don't move it out. But if you listen to the, the radio or podcast, there's constant advertisements right now that say, you could, you know, what are you earning on your bank deposits? You can earn a better return by putting it in, you know, right. whatever it is. And so All I think right. they're going to have to fight for this. John, John Carney, Breitbart, thank you ever so much. Appreciate it, folks. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, ace pollster John McLaughlin is going to talk about the Republican and the Biden situation. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're bringing in my pal John McLaughlin, pollster, consultant, CEO of McLaughlin and Associates with brother James so, John, has there been any polling since the CNN, uh, Trump CNN town hall? Um, there's been a little. I mean, there were two polls out yesterday that uh, Trump was ahead in Iowa and he's ahead uh, in Florida in the primary. And uh, we, you know, we recently had a Iowa caucus poll of where it was past caucus goers. It's hard to get the sample, but we had the past caucus goers because Trump's an announced candidate. It was done for his campaign. Plus, uh, Republicans, uh, like, who are likely to attend the caucus. And he was ahead 54%, DeSantis 20, Pence 7, Haley 5, Romney 4, Ramaswamy 2. So, you know, one on one against DeSantis, he's up 57, 35. And they're both going to Iowa now this weekend. Yeah. So you have Trump's holding a rally in Iowa tonight. And, uh, so, you know, they're both, they're both focused on, uh, where they need to be right now. And, and the good part for, for uh, President Trump is, and granted, full disclosure, because I work for him, as you know. By the way, has he called you lately? He needs more pro-growth message, Larry. I mean, he's got the CNN town hall. But he did well at the CNN temp. I mean, he had a great segment when he started with Drill Baby Drill, and then he went to taxes and deregulation. Uh, he has called, by the way, but I just, um, I thought he did pretty well on that. Yeah, I would agree. And since since then, his his the, the you know the numbers that I've seen, his his numbers have held or gotten better. So, and and by the way, when you think about the Manhattan verdict against him, mm-hmm. and then he went into the CNN lines, then where that was not uh, that was not a 
a town hall meeting. That was a debate between <laughs> Caitlin Collins and President Trump, and he got the better of her. I mean, she just yeah. she just wouldn't let up, and, yeah. and she was saying things that weren't true, and then she's saying what he says isn't true. It's just you know, but he was great, and they got high ratings. And you know what the th- thing is? I always said you know we've worked for different presidents. When I worked for Finkelstein, worked for Ronald Reagan. He was perfect that he was made to address people on TV. Worked for Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was at a time where he was the action governor, where he won the recall, et cetera. He was going around blowing up Volkswagens. Donald Trump was the high, was the high, had the highest rated reality TV show mm. in an age of reality TV. What you've got is you've got Donald Trump as a reality TV president, uh, the reality president, and you've got Joe Biden now, who's the fantasy president. I mean, it's like <laughs> he's not even there. So what's driving them nuts, why these uh, prosecutions or persecutions are going to continue, is that Donald Trump is leading Joe Biden in the polls. Mm-hmm. In our last national poll, which Trump was beating him 47-43. And actually, we do likely voters. So we're mm-hmm. pretty strict with our samples mm-hmm. that we not only do we use voter lists, but we screen for people who are likely to vote. So it represents, and it's modeled after the 160 million voters that came out in 2020. So most of our polls have more Biden voters from 2020 than Trump voters. But Trump, since the surrender of Afghanistan by Biden, has been ahead in the polls since October of 21. Mm. And now the real clear politics average, Trump is ahead by by a point over Biden. Most of those polls are registered voters polls. They don't screen for likely voters. And like the, there was a Yahoo News one, Yahoo News one or whatever, had us uh, down too. But if you put in the right numbers of voters, Trump would actually be ahead. I mean, in that poll, they had like 1,500 adults, and then they had 500 people never voted. And they, with the 1,060 registered voters, they had they had Trump barely behind. But if they did that poll correctly uh, and modeled it after an actual election with likely voters, Trump would be ahead. So what's your, even what's the your split? polls for us are good. What's your split, John? My split? And, and you mean like Trump ours, is ahead 47, 43? No, ours, ours and D's. 30, 36. It's it's exactly the same as uh, 2020, 36% Republican, 37% Democrat. Mm. So so it's, that's, what the, that's what the actual exit poll said in 2020. I was so. very surprised. Uh, I read someplace, uh, Newsmax or someplace, you were, you have Trump ahead in Iowa. Iowa was not really a Trump state. If you go back in 2016, well, as I recall, he lost Iowa. Then he came back and won New Hampshire. Um, so I was surprised at how well he was doing. Well, he's, he's up. Remember, he won it by eight points in 2020. Yeah, and, I can't, yeah. Yeah, he did. There were a lot of polls that said it was going to be close. But, again, it's like, you know, all during the 2020 campaign, we had to fight polls that were skewed towards the Democrats. Mm. And uh, uh, Iowa, you know, in, in the end there, he was. we won it by eight points. And now, I mean, when you look at it, I mean, right now, for the Trump was good for the farmers. You rearranged. Uh, you had a, a, the North American Treaty that that still helped the farmers, and he had this tariff battle with China. But at the same time, he put aid in to help the Iowa farmers. Yeah. So, so yeah. Apple. The I mean, Chinese when you look tra- at the, the Chinese. Tr- uh, by the way, the Chinese have not held up their bargain. Just saying. No. I just, oh, I, I just I just saw some com- some commodity numbers there. 
They're not buying the ag commodities, but that's a separate subject. I didn't mean it. They're cheating. Well, good, the Chinese are cheating. It's, surprise, surprise. Yeah, it's a, it's a good subject. And, and think about this week when uh, uh, when uh, the House with the Chairman Comer came out with the oversight report that the Biden family had accepted all this money from foreign people, whether it's China or, or Romania and all that. Uh, the, the Biden Justice Department decides to indict George Santos on the same day. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and, and what you've got is you talk about the media no longer covers Biden. They cover up for Biden. And so you had, uh, uh, you know, our last poll nationally, we had 82 percent are aware that the uh, that Bragg indicted Trump of likely voters. But only 54% are aware that the Biden family took money from China. So, <laughs> right. the, the, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, a, it's an unfair fight, but, but Trump is, is, he's still the anti-establishment candidate at a time when 70% of Americans say the country's on the wrong track. They say the economy's getting worse, not better, uh, 67% to 26%. Mm-hmm. And 55% of all voters think that we're in a recession. So, you know, that's their perception, and that, that was the last national poll. You know, it's uh, Gerard Baker wrote this in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago. It's going to be a pocketbook election, and mm-hmm. um, I think that's uh, Trump's breadbasket. That's his strength. And I think you Absolutely. saw that. I think you saw that, John. He did have a very strong section in the CNN debate. I'm calling it the CNN debate. Uh but he did great. That we played the we played the sound on TV. We played the sound at the beginning of this show on radio. Uh, his answer there when he started out, drill baby drill, got a huge round of applause, and then he went on from there. And he talked about taxes and regulations and went on. You know, I I think that just plays into his hands. Now, um, Governor DeSantis may have an, a strong economic message too. We haven't heard it yet. I think DeSantis has actually hurt himself with his obsession over Disney, frankly. He's into that too, way too deep. Too much woke, as Kellyanne Conway would put it. But um, so far, a pocketbook election, an economic election, is going to play into Trump's hands. And there's no way Biden can defend his record. It's a terrible record. Right. And that's, and that's what we're counting on. And you, you see, that's why the president has such a great record. And, he, and he's out there saying he'll do it again. And what's amazing is he's working harder. And I have people saying to me, he really wants this election. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's making calls. He's doing the rally today. Yep. He's been all these places, East Palestine, et cetera. And mm-hmm. by the way, to your point on economics, in our national poll, when we asked about the top issue people are most concerned with, 48% gave an economic answer. Only 30% answered with social issues. And the top single most important issue is 28% inflation, which is a hidden tax. Yeah. And, and, and when you look at the, Trump's advantage on that, he wins with the uh, economic issue voters, and he also wins with the 14% who care about security issues like immigration, crime, et cetera, national security. So it's a very Reagan-esque kind of anti-establishment coalition, but it's in the 21st century. And they're angrier. And by the way, 84% of the voters in that survey told us they were negatively impacted by inflation. Mm. 44% of all American voters saying they're still struggling to make ends meet for basic necessities. Yeah. So yeah. 
I don't know if Congress and Washington, and certainly not the Democrats, and certainly not Biden, because you know they got all these wire transfers from foreign governments and stuff, foreign oligarchs or whatever. But the, but the average person, you know, if you're going to the supermarket, if you're paying for gas, if you're paying your electricity bills, and in this national poll, when you were talking about fossil fuels before, mm-hmm. eighty only seven percent own electric cars, and this is on our website on McLaughlinOnline.com. They opposed the Biden regulation, 61 to 32. Wow. And they, right, wow. and they say, who should be in charge of deciding what kind of car you should buy? 86% said consumers, only 8% said the federal government. How, so, about, how about you can't have a, a, a gas stove, you can't have a strong shower, you can't have a strong flushing toilet. You can't have an air conditioner. You can't have a microwave. I mean, really? These are things people like. I mean, they don't want to have to go out and spend a lot of money to buy new ones either. Well, you and I are old enough to remember, this is why the Soviet Union collapsed. That's But this was Jimmy Carter telling you what temperature to uh, set your thing at and how you have to wear a sweater. This is the same as Jimmy Carter. Uh, this is worse. They're going to—they're passing regulations to mandate it. It's nuts. And can you imagine they're doing it with the military with vehicles? Yeah. So what happens if you have a blackout? <laughs> the United States gets attacked. No, we're going to—we're going to have—we're going to have a wind-powered intercontinental ballistic <laughs> missile. All right. How about that? No, I mean there's a certain ad, you know ad ad nauseum ad reductum, but it's it's really. Um, I think this grates on people. Their ordinary lives are being interfered with, John. I mean, they yeah. don't like that. The government is di- – it's like a bunch of dictators in Washington telling you what you can and cannot do. Uh, DeRoy Murdoch said on the TV show the other night, he said, you're not my mother. <laughs> right. You right. can't tell me what to do. And uh, yeah. I think that's going to really – I mean, that's Biden is like a – he's like the chief scold, you know? That's yeah. what he is. When he's not insulting people, he's a scold. I mean, that's that can't be any fun. All right, John yeah. McLaughlin, I'm going to let you go. Thank you, folks. Um, things look very, very interesting for President Biden. We're going to take a quick break, and on the other side of the break, going to bring in Chad Wolf, uh, who was Trump's uh, Secretary of uh, Homeland Security, talk about this gigantic mess on the border. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk for a few moments about this catastrophe at the southern border. I don't know what's going on today. Anyway, we got our great friend Chad Wolf, former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and he's also the currently the America First Policy Institute executive director uh, Chad, thanks for giving us some time. I know you're a busy guy. Are you still down at the border? No, Larry, I came back from El Paso on Friday. Uh, oh, so I'm, right. yeah. Good. I'm glad you're home. I'm reading, I don't know, the Wall Street Journal's running a story that things are easing at the border. Uh, is that true? Well, I think what you see there is the efforts uh, by the state of Texas and the uh, Texas Department of Public Safety. I don't think it has really much to do with what the Biden administration's doing. Texas has deployed a number of troopers, hundreds of troopers and military assets along that border Mm. and are currently repelling those migrants that are trying to come over illegally. So I think a lot of the success 
that we're seeing over the last couple of days since Title 42 ended is because of Texas. It's not because of the Biden administration. Mm. It's because of what Governor Abbott's doing. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. It's very right. There you have it. So can I ask you, I mean, I I know you were on the TV uh, yesterday and was very helpful, but I don't understand. The Bidens have made no attempt at all to replace Title 42, have they? Well, they haven't, and they've been very vocal over the last, um, I would say, six months that they are against it. They don't like Title 42, Um, and they've tried to – they actually tried to end it earlier, and a judge would not allow them to do that. Um, So what you're seeing today is is exactly, you know, what they have planned all along. What you have, Larry, in the Biden administration is they don't – they believe that anyone who approaches that border, whether illegally or legally – has any right to to stay here in the United States. And that's just not U.S. law, right? There are very specific requirements to seek asylum. And simply being an economic migrant looking for a better job is is not one of those reasons. We have over 75 to 80 different visa programs that you can apply for lawfully and lawfully enter the country. Uh, But the Biden administration doesn't believe in that. They don't believe they have a different ideology, and that's been on display for the last 27 months. I mean, I think that's incredible. They made no attempt to replace. So do we figure that uh, migrants, illegal migrants, might not have infectious diseases of any kind? Do we think there's no public health issues left? Is that what they're telling us? Well, I I think what they're telling you is the COVID uh, pandemic is over, so that Title 42 is, is now gone. But what I would argue is, we have a fentanyl crisis, right? Uh, and I would say right. that is a public health order. You could do another Title 42 because of the fentanyl crisis that's coming into, that's pouring over that border. So there's a lot of different ways to, to address this issue. There's a lot of other policies that the Biden administration could put in place. They could restart Remain in Mexico. Mm-hmm. That would almost, in about 30 to 60 days, have a dramatic effect on, on that flow. There's a variety of things that they have the authority to do because we did it during the Trump administration. They just they don't believe in it. They don't believe in enforcing that law along that border. They think it's inhumane to do that. And it's just it's such the wrong approach. And the numbers will, will tell a very different story. More migrants have died on the way to the border and in that desert and on the river than at any other time in history. And that's on the Biden administration. Yeah, I mean, I'm just stunned how they overlook or choose to overlook the fentanyl crisis and, in general, the issue of, you know, potential infectious diseases and, you know, public health administration. I'm just stunned by that. They made no attempt. I mean, it just occurred to me, I should have asked you this last night on the TV show, but it just occurred to me, you know, the whole issue here was Title 42 expiring, and they essentially had nothing to replace it with. Nothing. Yeah, that's right. They say they've been planning on this for for two years, (laughs) but the policies that they have put in place are not actually deterring anything. They're simply trying to manage the numbers. They're trying to process more individuals. That's why you look at the parole program they put in. Paroling people into the country is not solving the issue. It's actually incentivizing more and more to try to be part of that parole program. Putting processing centers south of the border is not solving this issue. It's just going to draw more and more people to those processing centers. So there's a fundamental difference here in trying to deter illegal behavior and illegal immigration 
versus incentivizing it. And almost everything that the Biden administration does in one way or another is incentivizing more and more of it. Um, Chad Wolf, does this uh, Florida judge's restraining order hold any water? I mean, they, I mean, they took great pains yesterday to insult the guy. But the question I have is, does it matter? Well, I think it does. What what the what Florida did was sue because DHS was announcing that they were mass releasing these migrants onto the streets. So no longer were they turning them over to shelters, to NGOs, uh, and to others that would try to take care of them. They were simply releasing them on the street corner at a gas station. And communities across the country, particularly in Texas and elsewhere, said, no, 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 no. That's not safe for our residents. Um, and so Florida went to the courts and got an injunction. So they can't do the mass releases. They've got to figure out another way. And, Larry, the other way is actually don't release them into American communities. That's not mm. what the law says. They will try to tell the American people that they have to release these folks. They don't. They don't have to do that. Mm. Um, and that's what we're battling at the moment. Can you just walk through uh, for listeners the business about asylum and asylum parole? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what the Biden administration has announced is uh, as these individuals come over, uh, most of them, if you're going to be released uh, because they don't have the time to actually do the paperwork, they're going to be released on parole. And so when you're released on parole, it's usually supposed to be on a case-by-case basis. And in the mm-hmm. Trump administration, we actually release very few people on parole. It's if you have a humanitarian need or it's a uh, medical condition. So if someone needs to come in from, you know, Venezuela or Peru for medical uh, procedure, then you parole them in, and then they leave sometime later. This administration's paroling somewhere between thirty and 50,000 people into the country every month. Mm. And when you put them in a parole program, you are uneligible, or I should say you cannot, DHS cannot remove people in the parole program from the country. So even though oh. you're here illegally... You have no legal right to remain. There's no need. The Biden administration's abusing the parole authority. So even if, if ICE law enforcement agents encounter these folks somewhere, they can't remove them from the country. Mm. And so it's a double whammy. The, the, they're not, you know, being really honest with the American people about what they're doing. So it's just another example of them letting them through. That's all. It's yep. creating the wrong incentives. It's a completely open border. And, um, as President Trump said in the town hall meeting, I mean, remain in Mexico, build the wall. I don't know. Chad Wolf. That's thank you very much, former uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. We'll talk much more about this. Folks, we're going to take a break. And on the other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. Oh, my goodness, there is a stock market. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, join us during the week, Fox Business Network, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. The name of the show is Kudlow. If you can't make it at 4, why then just um, text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will teach you how to DVR the show. And by the by... You can reach us on the Internet, live stream, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. It runs all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. So let's do some stock market work. 
Looking at the averages, the Dow Jones for the week fell now 374 points. S&P down 12. NASDAQ up 49. Good for the NASDAQ. And um, interest rates were kind of flat. Uh, let's look at this thing. Ten-year note, 346. Call 3.5%. Rates didn't hardly move. Gold didn't hardly move. Crude oil fell a little bit. West Texas, $70. That's all, 70 bucks. Brent crude, $74. The dollar exchange rate up a wee bit, 102.68 on the DXY. Commodities fell a bit. And I'm looking for gold, gold flat, 2010.77. Anyway, let's bring in our investment experts. Jim LeCamp is the senior vice president, Morgan Stanley, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO, KKM Financial. Gentlemen, welcome back. So let's, um, it's interesting, stocks not doing much, Jeff Kilberg. I mean, they're, you know, it's interesting. I had on the TV show yesterday Ed Yardeni, a very smart fella. You know, you can argue the market has probably outperformed all the doom and gloom surrounding the market about inflation and interest rates and recession. Um, the market's obviously off its highs Year to date, let me look at the Dow is about flat. The S and P is up seven and a half percent. I mean, the market's probably doing better than people expected it to do. Will that continue, Jeff Kilberg? I think it does continue, Larry. And the market's really in an interesting moment. A lot of inputs, a lot to process. We saw better uh, inflationary data, but at the same time, we're seeing earnings season, which is better than feared. And as we go into next week, we're going to see the strength of the consumer as the retail sector wraps up earnings season. So look at names like Walmart, Home Depot, Target. But by and large, Larry, I think it becomes more technical. There's a ton of emotion, I know, with Janet Yellen talking about us being broke on June 1st. But the technical aspect of the S&P 500, which, remember, is market cap weighted, so all the tech dollars are helping move that up 7 8% year-to-date. But the technical component is that there's been 250 days since the S&P 500 has been tethered to 4,000. So it seems that we are due for a breakout, and the breakout is going to go against sentiment. It's going to break above 4,200 in the short term once we get over this next headwind, which is the all-time dramatic debt ceiling crisis. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Um, Jim LeCamp, are we headed for a breakout, an upside breakout? We're headed for a breakout. Uh, I don't know which way it's going to go. If we break out uh, to the upside, a big uh, component of that is going to be short covering. Um, and, and, and you're not going to get multiple expansion here. You're just not. I mean, you might get a little bit, but there's not a lot of room there, particularly although we beat earnings expectations. Uh, it's kind of like saying, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how'd you like to play? Because earnings are actually down. Now, we've, we've beaten earnings expectations, yeah. I mean, you lower the bar enough, all you got to do is step over it. But uh, when you look at the breadth of this market, it bothers me a lot, too. There's a lot of divergences here between the NASDAQ and the Russell, for example, between the Dow and the S&P. And then you look at the, most stocks are still under their 200-day moving average, it kind of it, it does set the table for a breakdown as well. And remember, markets are kind of like bathtubs. When you pull the plug out of that bathtub, you don't really see the top going down initially. You, but but the water's draining, and right now the water's draining. When it, when you look at breadth, the breadth is terrible in this market. So 
I, I do agree that this market could break out either way. It's been very resilient. But if we get an upside breakout, I think the, your cap is going to be around 4300 and you need to be real careful about getting too bullish about that. I don't think anybody really in the market is worried, or at least not now, about uh, some, the debt ceiling, okay? And I want to I want to tell you, by the way, yesterday, I don't know if you saw it, the CBO came out with a report, and basically they contradicted Janet Yellen. Uh, it's not about June 1st. If you get through the June 15th tax date, all right, which is, a, you know, cash flow, revenues coming in, and there'll, there'll be revenues coming in. So if you get through that, you can go all the way through July. That's what the CBO said. Completely different from what Janet Yellen is telling you. So I don't see any immediate. I mean, they're negotiating, and they are going to cut spending, and McCarthy is uh, winning over Biden and so forth. But putting the politics aside, the sheer technical aspect of a potential debt default, it's just not there. It's not there. It may be there, but it's not. I mean, you're going to go through well into the summer before this becomes an issue, Mr. Kilberg. So I don't see that as a barrier. I agree. I think it's more of an emotional component. But, you know, to Jim's point and, you know, you Jim, feel emotional about the debt ceiling. I don't. I feel emotional about many things in life. OK, you know, love, relationships, up or down in life. Fighting Irishman. So yeah, I that's right. About all things. You feel but emotional think, about the Notre Dame football schedule, but I I don't feel that much emotion about the debt ceiling. Nor do I, but it's just a headline. It's clickbait. But what I do think is that it's another headwind, and I know Jim's view is you know the glass is half empty and maybe leaking, but my point was whenever you see a breakout <laughs> from a technical perspective, technical perspective, you have to remove the emotions. I think we jump up to 4450. I'm not saying it's sustainable, but you are going to see a bit of FOMO. You're going to see some short covering. But we really kind of have to get out of this, this, this situation where the Fed continues to day trade the market. And that's 4450 has not pushed us back to these lows. Wait, 4450 on the S&P 500? I see that. Yes. That's a, how Four much term. is that? That's a big move. It's a big jump. You know, it's nearly 300 uh, points. So we're talking about 6 7% if we do the math here. If I go back to my math classes at Notre Dame. But that's very attainable now. Is it going to be sustained at 4450 No, it'll probably back and fill. But the more time it spends above 4000 the more sentiment sours and the more the ability is to have that short curve that Jim talks about. And that's what moves market. It doesn't have to be rationalized. You know, as you know, the market's going to push people in the most pain. And right now, it's a bipolar market, Larry. Jim McCamp, I, I, I'm sure they teach, you know, the monks and priests at Notre Dame teach a lot of things, but math may not be one of them. <laughs> well, I went to Baylor, and they did teach us math at Baylor. Yes, yes. Um, but here's the thing. Um, you've got a lot of headline risk here, particularly uh, with the small uh, banks, uh, the tightening credit, the souring CapEx trends. You've got uh, – leading indicators down 12 months in a row, and a record drop in money supply. That's really yeah. not the stuff of a bull market at all. It's the stuff of recession. And uh, recessions usually start before a market bottoms. But the market bottoms happen during recessions. Now, could we get a short covering rally? Of course we could. Sentiment is the bear's den is very packed full of bears right now. So, yeah, we could have a – and there's going to be some trampling in there. So, we could, yeah, we could have a short covering rally. 
but uh, this market really lo- has all the earmarks of a. Um, the breadth is so bad that uh, it, it's it's pointing to further weakness, and B, the economic signals are so bad that they're pointing to recession. Larry, if I could just jump in quickly, the one thing we're not talking about, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, is the $8.5 trillion balance sheet. That's the shock absorber of all shock absorbers. What's the $8.5 trillion balance sheet? The Fed. Oh, the Fed. It continues to stay swollen. The Fed is here. The safety net's in place. It's going to be okay. You think the Fed's going to raise uh, rates another quarter or not? I don't think they should, by the way, but will they? They shouldn't, and I don't think they will. I think they have cover now with inflation abating. We did get better inflationary data last week, so I think they have the ability to pause and let let it see, but we give way too much credit to the Fed. They've notoriously been wrong. Uh, they were transient on their inflationary call just uh, you know a year and a half ago, so I think they're they're going to have to pause and sit on their hands and just wait to see how some of these chips fall with all the different headwinds that Jim you know did brilliantly point out. There's a ton to digest right now. I Jim, uh, what's if do you think the Fed will hold? Stay, I want them to pause, but it doesn't matter what I want. What do you think they're going to do? Okay, it's interesting because real interest rates have finally gone positive in Europe, and that's giving cover for both the Bank of England and the ECB to pause. And I think that gives the Fed cover to pause, even if – and real interest rates arguably have gone positive, depending on which metric you're reading, uh, here in the U.S., but the the curve is still very inverted uh, still. So I I think the Fed – Ought to pause. The Fed funds futures suggest not only are we going to get a pause, we're going to get a cut or two by the end of the year. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, the Fed funds futures can change, and they're often wrong, too. But, uh, yeah, I think they'll pause, and I think it's very possible that we get the first cut before the end of the year. You know, that inverted yield curve uh, doesn't get enough attention in terms of a leading indicator of the economy. Uh, the New York Fed model, which is about the yield curve, it's an old model. It's a very good model, I might add. 68% probability of a recession in the next year. That's what mm-hmm. it's predicting. And I don't – it's funny. Um, the recession – the current economy – let's see. The, uh, the Atlanta – who is it? The Atlanta Fed GDP tracker is, what, 2.5%. For Q2, I know it's early. We don't have much numbers in. But I just wonder about that, Mr. Kilberg. That thing is underrated. The recession risk, I think, is still underrated. And if I'm not mistaken, in recessions, profits come down. Profits are the mother's milk of stocks. So that worries me. You know, that's a concern, Larry. You're absolutely right. And I think we're going to see we're gonna better clarity this week when we see the true strength of the consumer in some of these retail stocks that are reporting. But I think to your point, you know, that is kind of masked. That is very opaque with the size of the Fed's balance sheet. And the Fed tried to reduce their balance sheet by $95 billion a month, and all of a sudden they had to inject $400 billion in to save some regional banks. So they're back up over $8.5 trillion. So until that shock absorber is safe and that really gets drained significantly, I don't think the market has the ability to go back and test those October lows. That's my view. All right, let's okay, take Okay, that's uh, an interesting point because – Usually when you're this far off of a bear market low, you have set the low end, and we're six months in. But there's a lot of room between here and there, and that that would imply that we could go down without taking out those lows. We could still go down a fair amount in all three of the major averages. Hmm, That's an interesting point, too. No doubt. 
I mean, I just, uh, I've, I'll end the segment where I started. The market has probably been more resilient, done better than people would have thought. This Agreed. is turned, You know, last so, year was a very bad year. This year, I mean, it's not been a spectacular year, but it ain't been that bad either. All right, gentlemen, Jim LeCamp, Senior VP of Investments at Morgan Stanley, Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks with Jim LeCamp, Senior VP of Investments at Morgan Stanley, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial and uh, Notre Dame University. Um, Gentlemen, does anybody care about the debt ceiling? Is there any evidence in stocks or bonds that the debt ceiling is weighing on the market? Start with you, Jim LeCamp. There's not right now, but there there has been in the past, and I don't think we can just shrug it off. Um, if you look at what hit the market in the fourth quarter of 2018, we had an 18% drop. And uh, the, the, the prior instance, when they lowered our credit rating, uh, we had a big drop in the market. So I don't think we can um, take it too lightly. I do think they'll work out a deal, and I think, yeah, we won't be talking about this six months from now. But uh, let's not forget uh, that this this has impacted the markets to a large degree. Remember, 19.2% drop in 18, that's almost a bear market, just mm-hmm. barely missed it. And it was primarily a big result of that debt ceiling fight. What would you look for, Jeff Kilberg? I mean, where would it show up in bonds first, or would maybe it show up in stocks first? Well, look, Larry, you know that I cut my teeth at the Chicago Board of Trade now the CME Group in the bond pit. So I'm always going to favor bond leadership. And the one month is revealing a bit of anxiety when you see it nearly, you know, 100-plus basis points over the two-year. Uh, I like to see that come down a little bit. The one month and three months is paying a little bit higher yield than expected. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's the U.S. government. We, we may have a technical default, and the media may have fun you know, playing and shooting articles, but it has no real bearing. Uh, we're going to continue to pay our bills, and if that's the case, uh, if something does happen like that catastrophic, I'm moving in your basement and bringing the bottle of water and spam. <laughs> spam, yeah, the spam's terrific. A couple of bananas, too. Uh, <clears throat> what is the outlook for interest rates, fellas? What's the outlook? The, the 10-year, uh, I'm talking bonds now, not the Fed funds rate, but the 10 year has been around 3.5% for a while, uh, Jim LeCamp. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about breakouts one way or another in the stock market. Uh, what's the next move in bond rates? Well, if you look at uh, how much our debt to GDP is now, um, and it, it is it is skyrocketing, that has been consistent with chronic economic downturns in other countries uh, once you get to these levels. And I don't want to say that we're turning Japanese, I really think so, like the song, but uh, that's the experience they had there, and we we could have that to a lesser degree. Now, the the sticky wicket here is that wages are still pushing north. Even though the the CPI numbers are coming down and uh, a lot of the metrics and a lot of the readings are coming down, wage push inflation is still a little bit of an issue for the Fed that they're going to have to deal with. And if they, it's, it goes past the Fed because it, it could hurt corporate margins as well, even though corporations have done a good job of squeezing more out of each employee that they have. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, in answer to your question, rates will likely drift lower. 
Uh, we need that uh, for less debt service payments. We're already over a trillion this year, mm. and um, and it, but it will also be reflective, uh, most likely, of a slower economy. I mean, if people don't look at M two very much, monetarism has been out of fashion for a while. But at the same time, if you look at the charts of that, M two exploded in uh, 2020 and 2021. And then, you know, got up to almost 30% year-to-year growth. M2's come down. The growth rate has now gone negative. It's actually contracting. If you use that, it tells you, I think, three things. It tells you inflation is coming down, which it is. It tells you recession is probably coming. We haven't seen that yet. And then it tells you that interest rates are going to come down along with inflation and recession. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were a Friedmanite, now I don't, I'm not a pure monetarist, but I, I guess I'm so old I still look at that stuff. I think it says that there's a big bond rally out there, Kilberg. Yeah, I think I'm going to get there uh, to the same answer uh, a little differently, but I think you're right, Larry. And I think bond, specifically the tenure, has the ability to go lower. But that monetary expansion you talked about, M2, went from $15 trillion to $21 trillion. That was historic. We've never seen that before, and we're never going to see it before. So I think what we've become conditioned to as investors is that the pendulum has been swinging too far one way or the other, i.e., look at the, the NASDAQ last year, down over 35%. So here we see some healing in the S&P 500. That's contributed to the NASDAQ stocks, which were probably oversold. So back to the bond market, I think the Fed isn't a predicament, but it goes back to what I kind of illuminated earlier is their balance sheet. If they want to continue to keep a swollen balance sheet, which I think they have to, they're not choosing to, they have to. And if they want to keep the cost of capital high to kind of pump the brakes on the economy by allowing this inversion, yes, I think you do see, to Jim's point, a potential rate cut later in the year, even Q1, and that 10-year note is going to continue to move lower, which will continue to feed into the thesis. And I'm not a permable. You know that, Larry. But the short-term thesis that's going to feed into tranquility and allow some of these technology stocks to continue to run and repair the damage ahead in 2022. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Jim LeCamp, Senior VP at Morgan Stanley, and Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial. Thank you, gentlemen. Very, very good. Thank you. Folks, we're going to take a break, and we're going to do some money in politics on the other side with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and his excellent radio show, More Money, follows this show at 1 p.m. on most of these very same stations. Welcome back, kids. Liz Peek, start with you. I would say Trump 10, Caitlin Collins 0. <laughs> oh, gosh, what a fiasco. Uh, <laughs> That's what I'd say. Well, yeah, I, I mean, certainly she was no match for uh, Trump. There's no question. He just sort of steamrolled over her. Uh, and, and honestly, she came off as pesky and sort of an irritating little gnat sort of buzzing around his ears, you know. 
that yes. was sort of the the message. But but you know, at, at the end of the day, who really won from that? I'd say CNN. I mean, what they get three point seven million viewers or something mm-hmm. like that, the highest mm-hmm. audience in years for CNN. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Trump obviously won in the sense that he did confront the audience. And if we're talking about a Trump Biden rematch. Uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty clear that he can hold his own. I mean, the next day, Larry, there was someone tweeting saying, gosh, not a single question from Caitlin Collins about mental acuity or age, but lots of questions for Biden. And I tweeted back, well, yeah, it's because pretty obviously Trump can handle it and Biden can't. I mean, what a stark difference we saw, right? That's an important point. Uh, Trump was, you know, Steve, Trump was on his game. He may actually have improved his game. And I want to say, too, uh, the questions from uh, Caitlin Collins were, were all these gotcha questions yeah. about the past. But, you know, the questions from the voters were substantive questions on the mm-hmm. economy and the border and Ukraine and so forth. And, Steve, I think they handled them. Pre- he handled it very well. And I love Drill Baby Drill. Loved yeah. it. <laughs> that was a great moment. Well, I have a little confession to make. Unlike the you all, I didn't watch that whole debate. Oh, <laughs> but, but, no. But I, but I did watch, uh, you know, a lot of the highlights of it. And uh, I came away, first of all, if he, had, if he had acted like that in the first debate with Joe Biden, he would still be president today. Oh. I really believe that. I mean, mm-hmm. the first debate with Biden was such a catastrophe. And, you know, he was angry. He was kind of mean and nasty. And this he, was one, sick he, was, too, he was sick, too, by the way. Was he? I was wondering about that. He had COVID. No, no, he had COVID. But, 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 you know, what people don't like about Trump, there are a lot of things people don't like about Trump. But one thing people don't like about him is this kind of chaos that he <laughs> sometimes engenders. What I loved about his performance, and I didn't like every answer he gave, was he was calm. He was confident. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he just, you know, I, I, thought, I was really impressed with how he answered the questions, you know, so readily, you know, mm-hmm. and he didn't have to think about it. And I did love, I mean, my favorite moment was because I, when he was asked that question about what do we do out of inflation, I was thinking, how would I, you know, how would I answer that question? And he just nailed it. And he mm. said, drill, baby, drill. And what I loved, I mean, the audience just erupted in yeah. applause yeah. when he said that. And so I love that because you and I both talked to Trump. Stop the trash talking. Stick to the yep. issues. And one yep. final thing I'll say, you know, Trump's path to the White House, if there is one, and I think there is, I'm, and I'm not taking sides in, in among the, you know, outstanding Republican field, is to just do what Reagan did. Look straight into that camera and say to the American people, are you better off than you were four years ago? Mm-hmm. And clearly, 70% of Americans don't think that they are. It's going to be a pocketbook election, Liz. Yep. And that's going to give him an advantage in the primaries and in the general. Now, I, we haven't heard from DeSantis. DeSantis is a very smart guy. Uh, he's a little too wokey right now fighting Disney. But I'm sure he'll have an economic agenda. Uh, yeah. So we haven't heard from that yet. But I will say Trump laid out his economic agenda. I mean, he mentioned, of course, drill, baby, drill. But he also mentioned his tax cuts and his deregulation. And I think that, you know, those are his strengths. Those are his strengths. He did it once. He could do it again. I I agree 100 percent. And I think one of the big untold stories right now uh, is how this 
regulatory tidal wave is again engulfing our economy, slowing growth, just mm-hmm. like it did during the Obama regular uh, administration. You remember, Larry, all those articles all of us would write about green shoots from the mm-hmm. coming back from the 2008 uh, recession and how then Obama would roll out another regulation and it would stifle those green shoots. The exact same thing is happening now. And and really, people aren't commenting on very much, but this new thing with power plant emissions and mm-hmm. all the stuff about what kind of dishwasher you can have, and most of it's climate-related, but not all. Some of it's having to do with labor economics and Joe Biden's big pro-union push, which by the way, yes, unions are getting energized, and that's a great thing for our country. We have strikes to look forward to, more wage demands, et cetera. There's just a lot of stuff that's going wrong out of this White House. And I think I think Trump can talk about that, and it would be a very powerful thing. But by the way, Trump's economic agenda and DeSantis's look a lot alike, right? Yeah, I mean, I think DeSantis really has to make this case. Both of these men have a record to run on in terms of guiding a very successful economy. So both need to do it. It'll be very strong in the general, but probably not the differentiating thing in the primary. You know, Steve, that's just uh, one of Liz's points, the regulations. This power plant edict from the EPA, Uh, I mean, this this could knock out 40 to 50 percent of our power, of our electric power. That's how bad this is. And they're arguing you have to go to uh, carbon capture and you have to go to hydrogen. The technology doesn't even exist now in any, uh, you know, scale them up uh, uh, way. This is insanity. They will take out half of the utility grid. It, it is lunatic. And you're right. I would I would say over 60 percent. You know, people I was just looking up. these. Is that numbers. what it is? It we could be. Some, yeah, we had something in the hotline on this. So we get. Sixty-five uh, percent of our electric power generation in America from oil, gas, and coal. Sixty-five percent. Sixty-five percent. Now, uh, I, one thing that shocks me about Biden, actually, at this stage of his presidency, is that you know both Clinton and even Obama started pivoting to the middle. Oh. You know, at this stage, mm-hmm. Biden shows no signs of that. What I mean, it is full speed ahead. With this radical agenda on tax, I mean, first of all, he wants to raise uh, tax rates on investment to 70 and 80 percent. He wants to this green agenda would knock out half. You're, you're right. At least half of our power plants in America mm-hmm. over the next decade. Really, we're going to we're going to provide you know enough electric power for a 24 trillion dollar industrial economy with windmills. I mean, really? Yeah. Is that their agenda? Yeah. So, you know, China isn't going to do that. How are we going to compete with China, Larry, if they're getting their power from, you know, coal and, and natural <laughs> gas and fossil fuels and we're relying on solar power and, and wind? I mean, it is it is uh, an anti-America agenda. Uh, Trump really needs to jump jump on that. But I, I just am shocked. I don't know about you guys, but at this point, Biden should be moving. He's not even moving to the middle one inch on the budget and the debt issue, which is a huge issue for Americans. Well, or, or the border. I mean, can we just yeah, stop for exactly. a moment and look at what's going yeah. on in the southern border? I mean, yep. is there anything that mainstream America uh, is is concerned about that he is addressing? I think, honestly, the answer is no. And, you know, mainstream America is concerned about overspending. They're concerned about tens of thousands of people every week coming into our country illegally. Right now, people don't even know where to put them. I mean, it's a ridiculous Mm -hmm. situation. 
I, I, Steve, I think you're really right. I, I don't understand. Well, the only way really to understand it is that the people around Biden don't think he's going to run for a second term. Maybe. That whatever, yeah. there's something's going to happen where he doesn't right. have four more years, and so there is no need to pivot. I mean, that's one way to interpret it. Well, Gavin Newsom can't win because he's got all of a sudden a $30 billion budget deficit in California. <laughs> yeah. $30 yes. billion and, in one state. And, and uh, he's well, just done this for Robert F. Kennedy on... Jr. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> what were you going to say, Liz? Well, I was going to say he just did this flip-flop on, on reparations, which I, I think has to be one of the most boneheaded saints <laughs> ever. Uh, I mean, you kind of get everyone all roped up about, wow, you're going to be the first in the nation to provide people with reparations. How fabulous is that? And then you pull the rug out from under. Now he's saying, you know, nothing's – I mean, it's always possible that he comes back and, and champions this. But it was a ridiculous recommendation uh, that was going to bankrupt his state. Obviously, it was going to go in that direction. So I – I, boy, I, th- I don't know. I thought it was there an were no slaves in blunder. California. There were yeah, no California slaves in California. California was a free state. Yeah, 1850s, no slavery. I still don't understand it. I don't. Yeah. I don't. For the life of me, it's just the most. I want to move out there just to get all this money they're giving. Yeah, but Larry, it's very simple in the case of Gavin Newsom. If he wants to run for president, he has to make headway with black voters, and he's nowhere with black voters. So this was his big idea, and uh, boy, oh boy, that ship just sailed off and then sank like a stone. Larry, can I just circle back to Trump for a minute? Yeah. Because uh, I think this was – look, he was a big winner this week. By the way, it's so funny. I do read, like, I watch MSNBC and, and, you know, the more left-wing, and they, like – you know, Trump was the big loser this week. And what, what are they talking about? And people really got re-energized by that performance. But I know you talk to him all the time, and he's got to stop talking about the election. Now, of course, the media yeah. keeps goading him into talking about that. He yeah, to, I mean, I don't, I don't, think, I don't yeah. think he'd want – I mean, she just kept harping away uh, at that. Oh, I know, I, I'm not sure he that, wanted Larry. to go there. And my because, point is, you know, why doesn't he just say, look, I think the election was – you know, was stolen, but we're not. But uh, Americans want him to focus on 2024, not 2020. Yep, the future. Oh, I agree. But look at, you know, Molly Hemingway was on the TV show, and, you know, her argument is still the best argument. That election, it, it, counting, ba- counting phony ballots over and over again wasn't the issue. It was the Zuckerbucks left-wing yeah, of course, uh, yeah. harvesting yeah. that did it. And that's I still think that's his best argument to that. But, you know, look at how well he answered the questions from the voters. I think Mm -hmm. that was the tip off that he's at the top of his game. I mean, that's really, I think, what what won him this thing when she stopped buzzing around his ears, as (laughs) as Liz put it. I mean, honest to God, Um, just one Come back to the power thing. There's a good op-ed uh, chap named Ben Lieberman. I don't know who he yeah. is. He's with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, I think. Lighting, yeah. furnaces, washing machines, dishwashers. Let me see what else he's got here. Air conditioners, okay? And now you can't have any electricity from power plants. I mean, this yeah. is like a dictatorial central planning regulatory state. This well, is, it is. Well, you know, did, did you like know this? that they're going to? Uh, did you hear that they're um, 
uh, uh, renaming the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. It's now going to be the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, Air Conditioners, Grass Stoves. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I, people don't like this. Uh, DeRoy, no. Mur- De- DeRoy Murdoch looked in the camera on the TV show the other night, and he just said, you're not my mother. You, you can't tell us how to behave and live like this. They're interfering with our everyday life, and they well, keep and doing it under the roofs of climate change. I agree, and I think at the end of the day, what is really going to make voters wake up to this threat is because their electricity prices are going up enormously. Mm-hmm. America mm-hmm. has been blessed with very cheap electricity for decades Last year, I think it was up 14% for the nation overall. It's going to be up probably more this year. You can trace that exactly back to all these mandates, all these restrictions. And But to your point, Larry, how stupid is it to be driving everybody down the road towards everything be ele- being electrical, like mainly cars, and then basically decide you're not going to be able to produce the electricity. That's what's happened in California, and that's what they want to do nationwide. So, you know, we this message has to get out. Trump has to get smart about this. DeSantis has to get smart. Whoever's running on the right, this is a real threat to our country. And these zealots who are in the White House just don't care. They don't care that it's a threat. People really need to bring this home. Good point. Let's take a break right there. Liz Peak, Fox News, syndicated columnist Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and more money. His great radio show following this one. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a break. Be right back. Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow. Permitting reform, work requirements, uh, and spending caps have a good shot at getting through. What do you make of that? Well, that's music to my ears, if it is true. Um, look, Republicans hold all the cards here. They're winning this debate. Uh, they're, they're actually they're winning by a big margin. I mean, the polls show overwhelmingly Americans don't support Biden's position of simply saying, I'm not going to negotiate. He's schizophrenic in his messaging. One, one day, one out of one breath, he says it's going to be economic Armageddon if we don't have a budget uh, you know, passed on the other and the other says he's not going to negotiate. And so I think I'm in favor of the Republicans taking a pretty hard line here mm. because they are winning and they've got the public behind them for the first time. You know, I've been you and I have lived through these for, what, 40 years. And mostly mm. it's been the Republicans who get blamed for the mm. crisis. But in this case, I think Biden has taken such a and by the way, I just finished writing a column about how is it that that the, the Democrats really got trapped here. And McCarthy, I salute him. But the, the game changer was getting that bill through the House, yeah. which I, even I didn't think he'd be able to get done. You know, Schumer didn't think he could get it done. Biden didn't think he'd get it done. And once they did it, it just changed the whole uh, tone of this debate. And I think the Republicans are going to walk off with a pretty big victory here. Spending caps, too, Liz, were on that list. Uh, this was an article from The Hill, and I went and checked on it. And um, sure enough, now... The staffs are still meeting. I mean, it's going to be an arduous process. Uh, I don't think June 1 is really the date. I mean, the CBO came out and said if they get through the corporate tax date June 15th, they'll be fine through July. So I think this is going to last quite some time. But I must say, Steve is right, uh, McCarthy's got the upper hand. And you could have some very serious uh, reforms. And I might add, these are pro-growth reforms 
and their anti-inflationary reforms. Well, anytime you check government writ large, you are talking about a growth-related reform for sure. I agree with Steve that I think the American people connect big spending with inflation. Inflation remains one of the top concerns among voters. So, yes, I think they're pretty in in bed with this idea. And I think there's been enough conversation about how Joe Biden in the past has voted against uh, ceiling increases and so forth to make him out to be very hypocritical on this. But, you know, there's a bigger story here, which is that the GOP Congress in general is doing extremely well. Mm. Uh, you know, they just passed a border mm. bill, for heaven's sakes, an immigration mm. bill. I think that's huge. I mean, again, lots of different factions in the party, lots of different points of view on a very hot button issue. But they got a bill done. So good for them. Good for Kevin McCarthy. I mean, all that you know, hand-wringing over how we weren't ever going to see this uh, caucus get together on anything, that's just not true. And, I, I, you know, right now I'm feeling very positive uh, about Kevin McCarthy and about the fact that the Freedom Caucus is working with him. Uh, you know, some of those guys were down at, um, uh, at the Freedom Works event. I think they're very smart people. They know what they're doing. It's just not... A nutty group, and you know, I'm—I don't know—I'm kind of optimistic that they're going to hold, yes, Biden's feet to the fire on, on this uh, spending situation, but also on other issues. Steve, I'm staggered at how the Bidens think this border catastrophe <laughs> is not important. Yeah. I mean, really? I mean, they lie about it, or they attack the judges. I mean. It's like they they don't it's not on their radar screen and the rest of the country is in an uproar about this. And um, it's like every state is a border state because the people are coming through and they're in into the interior of the country and there's no place to put them. Uh, They're not going to get health care. They're not going to get shelter and lodging. They're displacing veterans here in New York in the shelter uh, homeless uh, hotels. I mean, but the, but Biden's are, it's like it's it's not important. It's it's not much of an issue. I I'm staggered by this. This is an incredible political miscalculation. And and as you said the other night on your show, it is a it is a, a vast um, humanitarian crisis. I yes. was watching yesterday some of the uh, footage of these migrants. And by the way, the migrants are just coming here. You know, Biden's basically come on. You know, waving them in. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I, I saw a couple. You know, pictures that just scared me and, and really demoral. I mean, these migrant women were literally, this migrant woman was holding, crossing the river, and the river was up to her, you know, practically her chin, and she's holding her young baby over mm. her head. Okay. You know, and it's, it's just, it was so depressing that, that we're in this kind of situation right now. Um, and, you know, Trump, Trump had it. You know, he, he basically said, look, Number one, we're going to secure the border, and he was on the way doing that. He hadn't entirely done it, but he certainly were along the way in terms of building the wall and other policies. And then he said, like, once we have the, the border in check, then we can have a rational immigration system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can get mm-hmm. the workers in this country that we need, and it's now chaos. And it's because of this – again, it's to some point that um, you were making, Liz, earlier, that – this agenda of the Biden administration is being driven by the hardcore leftists of the yeah. party. All right, kids, I got to stop. Liz Peake, thank you very much. Steve Moore, thank you, folks. Thank Watch, you. Uh, listen to Steve Moore Radio Show coming right up. I'm Kublo, and we'll be back next weekend.